So as I discussed last week, um, we're beginning a series on uh, the Ten Commandments. Last week we talked about the, the role of the Old Testament in the Christian life and how we might more appropriately uh, approach it and uh, utilize it in what we do and what we believe and in what we practice to some degree. And we noted uh, primarily that um, we noted primarily that the Old Testament functions uh, in the Christian life through the means of, of the principle applied. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about His relationship with His people and what He expects and so forth? And so as we begin uh, our study, uh, we want to keep that in mind. And we begin, of course, the Ten Commandments with the First Commandment. And uh, so looking in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, or I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, or the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now this is a, this is the precursor. This is the preamble to the Ten Commandments, and it communicates to us several truths, several realities about the Ten Commandments that we need to keep in mind as we go through them, and 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 as we try to apply them and, and understand how they function in our life and in our circumstance. The first of these is that they are relational in nature. Okay, the the the, the Ten Commandments are about relationship. How does God begin this? He, he says, I am Yahweh, your God. He gives a personal name, and he gives his place, his position in, in their life. He, he expresses this, this reality that this isn't just that uh, these are some things I want you to do, and I'm going to stay up here, and you're going to stay down there, and, and so therefore you do this. He, he's, he's communicating this in terms of, uh, of a connection, in, in terms of a relationship in terms of, of a bond that has been created through his activities in, in rescuing uh, Israel from slavery. The second truth about these is that they were created for an already redeemed people. Again, this is so fundamentally important when, when we start talking about the Old Testament, start talking about what's going on there when we talk about the laws in particular. So often we think of the Old Testament as a law and the New Testament as grace. But in reality, the laws that we find in the Old Testament were not a means to the relationship. They were a result of the relationship with God. In other words, God did not come to Israel and give these laws to them and say, get those down, and once you have those down, and once you have those in order, and once you're living up to at least somewhat of a standard, then I'll rescue you then I'll redeem you. You can earn your way into a relationship with me. That's not what God said. God said what? He said, I see you in captivity. I'm going to draw you out by my mighty hand. He pulls them out. He leads them to Sinai. There at Sinai, he says, all the earth is mine, but you're my special possession. And now here in chapter 20, he says, this is what I want you to do. As my already redeemed people. And so as we look at them and as we deal with our own lives and deal with our own expectations before God uh, and so forth, we recognize that that these laws, they're, they're not meant to be. And they're never expressed anywhere in Scripture for everybody. They're not. They are about a redeemed, relational people. They are about a connection that's already in existence. 
Paul says uh, in, in his letters later on, he says what? We can't expect, we shouldn't expect the pagans to keep God's law or to understand God's laws or, or to understand what it means to relate to Him at all because they don't have that relationship. And so as we deal with them, we understand that, that it's not just, these are not just laws that, are just, that God's just throwing out there. These are expressions of His relationship with us and the fact that He's already redeemed. He's already delivered. Their, our salvation, their salvation was not dependent upon us. And then third, these laws were meant to liberate. They are barriers that liberate. They, they, they bring freedom. They bring opportunity. Okay. Um, we are all, Scripture tells us, we are all slaves to something. Peter tells us in, in 2 Peter 2.19 that, that the temptations of the flesh and so forth, they promise freedom, but they themselves uh, bring slaves. And, and they cause us to be slaves of corruption. We're all slaves to something. We all have, quote, rules that we follow, that, that, that are over us, that possess us, that drive us. But the commandments that are given here are designed to, to liberate us from that, to, to help us to understand who we are and, and to help us to understand who God is and to help us to walk with a sense of security. Now, we have twisted them so often. We have taken them in direction so often in, in terms of some sort of obligation or or onerous reality in our life. But in reality, they, they can grant us uh, a level of liberation, a level of freedom. Again, whatever relationship you're in, one of the, one of the things that, that really helps is when you know what the expectations are. When, when you know what's expected of you, you know, at work, you know, uh, if, if, you're, if, you, if you're working for a boss and they're constantly changing the expectations or, or holding you accountable for expectations that they never expressed or, or, or you know, what, whatever the case may be in that sort of situation, that's a miserable work environment. The same thing's true in romantic relationships, parenting relationships, whatever relationship you're in. When the rules are constantly changing, when the expectations are constantly changing, you really don't know how to live. You don't know what to do. You're walking on eggshells. One of the things that I think really distinguishes Judaism and Christianity from Islam is that Islam functions under the mentality, whatever God wills, whatever Allah wills. And so the people within Islam, by and large, don't always know exactly what they're supposed to do. And so they walk around in kind of a misery. But within Judaism, within Christianity, especially God has revealed His will to us. He has communicated to us what it is He desires. And, and we, can find, we can find some freedom in that. We can find a better life in that. There's not a law listed here that, that if we follow it, does not lead to a better life, to, to a more comfortable existence, a happier existence. And so as we keep those foundational truths in mind, we, we, we start to move into the laws themselves. And the very first one is, that you shall have no other gods before me. That's what it says there in, in Exodus 20, uh, verse 3. No other gods before me. And, and there is a challenge in that reality. But 
And it's important for us to understand that that challenge of the one true God is at the center of all life. To recognize this is to, is to fall into line with, with everything else that we have to believe and have to do. We're going to see when, as, when we get to the 10th the commandment that, that it functions as a, as a framing device with the first commandment. Really, all 10 commandments rest on 1 and 10. If you got 1 and 10 in place, 10 is what? Do not covet. If you got 1 and 10 in place, then what? You've got the two great commandments in place, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments frame the rest of the commandments to, to give us a, a clue as to how to follow them, to give us a clue as to how to understand them and how to interpret them and how to apply them. And so this is the starting point. This is the, the greatest commandment, really, in many ways. Because the recognition here, first of all, is that this really ultimately means no other gods, period. I don't know if this is the thoughts that went through your head or so forth. Maybe it's just one of those oddities of my mind and how it works. But when I was a kid and I heard this commandment, you should have no other gods before me. I always read that before me as kind of an order thing. Okay? Here's God. Don't put anything else in the line before Him. That's how I kind of understood that sentence. That's how I, I, how I read it as a kid. Okay? There's a, there's a line of priorities, and God should be first in that line. That's how I understood it. As I grew up and, and, and learned and grew and, and understood the, you know, the actual phrase that's translated here, Literally what he says is before my face. That's the phrase that's actually there in the Hebrew. Don't have any other gods before my face, which is a way of saying what? In my presence. Okay. It's not like God is saying, okay, I, I, I want to be the first God. Okay. He's saying no other gods, period. Don't have any other challenges to my presence, to, to my role, to my place. Um, present in your life. I will have no rivals. I will have no one who is um, vying for my attention. And the idea here is is really not as unsophisticated as you might think. I, I think a lot of times we, we also read this and we think of, of them bowing down to idols you know, we, we, we read the stories of the various gods that they had. That, you know, the golden calf and other situations like that. We read those stories and we think, I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's not a problem for me. I don't have any golden calves in my backyard. I'm good to go. But having other gods is more than that. And so we, we need to ask ourselves, what makes for, what identifies, what, how do we know something is another God? How do we, how do we answer that question? And there, there are several things I, I want us to consider this morning in terms of what makes something or what turns something into a God. Okay. The first of these the first question we, we have to ask is, 
is at the center of your focus. Whatever that may be. It could be a person. It could be a task or a job. It could be uh, any entity in your life. Is it where your focus is? Is it where your drive is? Where do you spend your time and your money? You want to know what a person prioritizes? Ask where they're spending their money. That's what's truly important to them. Where do you spend your life? Where do you, where's your thought life constantly going? And I understand there's tons of things in our lives. There, there's tons of things that are vying for our attention. You know, if you're a student, you have assignments you got to carry out. You don't get those assignments turned in. You what? You wasted time. You wasted your energy. You wasted money. And that's not good stewardship. But I don't think God would have us do that. If you, you know you're you're a worker, you you have a job. You know you you don't do your job. You don't focus in on your job and, and pay attention to it. Then you're wasting you know your employer's time. And in fact, you're breaking another commandment. What? You're stealing from them. So I understand that there are lots of things that buy for our focus. What I'm getting at here is, is what is what is your default? What is the thing that when life subsides somewhat, when 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 things kind of settle down, or or even when you're making decisions, where does your focus go? What is the priority for you? Is it yourself? Is it some other individual? Is it just the success of that job or that career itself that's your focus or your drive? A second test or a second question is, is it indispensable to you? In other words, is it something that is in your life that you just can't live without? Is it something that, that's so important to you, so vital to you, that it's your focus? That if it were taken away, you would just collapse into a mess? Third, is it someplace where you find the comfort and peace? When life does get hard, when things do get difficulty, when when things fall apart, where do you turn to find relief and comfort and peace? And fourth, does it drive your emotional life? It drives whether you're happy or sad. It drives whether you're walking in power and encouragement or, or walking around depressed and overwhelmed. Now again, different things are going to affect one or more of these at different times in your life. But if you have something in your life, if you have something that, that fits probably two or three of those criteria at least, it's a God. It's a rival to God in terms of your life and your existence and your experience. 
Because at the end of the day, God should be the center of your focus. God is ultimately the only thing that's indispensable. God is to be the source of our comfort and our peace. God is the one that should derive our emotional health. He should check off all four of those. He should be at the heart of who we are. And that's what he's calling Israel to here. It's what he's calling us to here. When you love the Lord your God, what? With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. That basically sums up all you are, right? I mean, that is the totality of our being. Our emotions, our thought processes, our decision-making processes, the very actions we carry out must be driven by a love for God. Jesus says. And so if anything else is driving us, then, then that has become a, a God to us. That has become a priority to us. But how do we, how do we get there? I mean, it's one thing with all of these we're going to see. It's one thing that to say, do this or don't do that. It's quite another to carry it out, isn't it? quite another to, to actually see it enacted in our lives. Because there's a lot of good things in our life that could be, that could answer those relationships with, or a certain person. You know? Jobs. Other things that are, that are, that are good things. They're good things. But the moment they become the priority, the moment they fill those slots, they're not a good thing anymore. I mean, you think of Israel and the temple, for instance. They had the temple. Okay? The temple was what? It was a gift from God. It was something God had given them to, to be a meeting place with Him, to, to connect with Him. But what did it become? It became the center of their focus. Jeremiah tells us that over and over again they were saying, you know, turn to the temple, turn to the temple, turn to the temple. It was indispensable to them. We, we read, for instance, Psalm 137, the, the results after the destruction of the temple. One of the harshest psalms in all the Psalter where the people are, are just so filled with anger that they're asking for destruction of those who have hurt them because, what, the temple was taken away from them and they couldn't find any peace without it. It was where they found their comfort and peace. God won't destroy us or we won't be destroyed by Babylon. We read in Kings and, and, and other places we won't be destroyed by Babylon. We have the temple. I can rest easy. And then, of course, the emotional life brings all that together. That was Israel. And there are some who would have this mentality with church or with their marriage or with other things like that. It has become the priority. God will not have 
being rivals. So how do we get there without turning into legalistic individuals who are walking around, well, can't do that and can't do that. People who have no joy, people who have no, no real peace, people who have no, no presence. How do we get to this place? Well, I think the, the first thing that we need to, to do is we need to recognize that change is good. Realize that change is good. And, and this is why I start there, because a lot of times the heart of our commitment to something in our lives, to some person or some individual, is because we're afraid to let go and let God change us or change our circumstance or, or do something new. And because we're afraid to let go, we hold on to it so tightly that it becomes our focus. It becomes our, 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 the center of our attention. It becomes what drives us emotionally. And so we need to, we need to realize that, that change is good. And, and the way that kicks in is it's a matter of trust. Too often we trust what we know instead of trusting who God is. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Do you trust that word from Him? Do, do, do you recognize that as a part of your existence, and your reality? Now, that doesn't mean there's not a cost, because He says elsewhere, consider the cost of, of building this tower, of, of connecting with me. But what it does mean is that the cost is, is always worth it. Giving up who we're known as or what we're known for or certain things in order to see God glorified is always worth it. But it can only happen as we trust God, as we recognize again His, centri His centrality. The second thing we need to do is we need to recognize that change, realize that change is possible. Scripture tells us that in Christ we are new creatures. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is possible to change our attitudes. It is possible to change our mindset about things and things that we're committed to, things that we shouldn't be committed to, priorities that we made that shouldn't be a part of what we are. It is possible. Too many times Christians slip into the mode, well, I'm only human. I make mistakes. And yes, you are human. You are going to make mistakes. John tells us in 1 John, he who says he has no sin makes God out to be a liar. So yes, we are going to make mistakes. We are going to sin. But that is not an excuse for refusing to grow. That's not an excuse for, for achieving, accomplishing, finding more and more deliverance from sin in our lives. 
Because the truth of the matter is, if you are a believer, you're not only human. You're not just a human. You're a human empowered by the Spirit of God. And that changes things. That allows us to grow. That allows us to experience decisions that, that, that can change our behavior, that can change our actions and our activities. But we need to thirdly remember that change is only as permanent as long as we want it to be there. You see Israel here at Mount Sinai. And God says, don't have any other gods besides me or before me. And he says that with the full expectation that, that that's something they can do as they recognize who he is and so forth and the redemption he's brought. But what do we see Israel doing? Numbers chapter 11 says the rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also sons of Israel were up again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. I want you to think about that statement for a minute. I would prefer to be back in Egypt than be here. Because there, I had cucumbers and, and melons. And onions and garlic. <laughs> but think about that. Think of, think of how the, the slavery was described. Think about what the slavery was like. They were beaten. Taskmasters applied whips to their back. They did not have any source of freedom, any sense of freedom. Their children were killed by the Egyptians. They were mistreated in any number of different ways. But let's go back to that because that was good. And we're no different. We've been redeemed. We've been delivered. We've been rescued. We've, we've experienced the salvation. And yet, so often we're tempted to go back to those gods we used to serve those lives we used to live, because, quote, it was good back then, wasn't it? That's the lure of false gods. They offer things they can't deliver. They plant ideas in our mind that they can't carry out. And we let stress and weariness and frustration lead us back into the sin that we were redeemed from. Why? Because we haven't learned to make God the, the one upon whom we rest. The one that gives us the comfort and the peace. The one who gives us the hope and the joy. Why? <laughs> because we keep making ourselves the God. 
instead of him. We keep making other things God instead of him. The fourth step to escaping the lure of other gods is rejoice that the change was accomplished for you on the cross. This is the ultimate reality to, to escaping the legalistic mindset that can sometimes set in when we're trying to keep commands or laws. We do what we do out of joy. We do what we do out of a sense of what Christ has already accomplished for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God has given us the ability to break free. God has given us the ability to see Him as the center as we recognize that the change we experience, the hope we experience, the redemption we experience is because of what He's already accomplished. But too often we're, we hold on to the imitation. We hold on to the to the fake. I heard a story several years ago. It was a story of a little girl. She was standing in the line at the grocery store with her mama. And she looked over and, you know, as they do often in grocery stores and department stores and so forth, they put the little things that are real attractive to kids there. Candy bars and other little toys and stuff. And sure enough, she saw this little box that had this string of fake pearls. She wanted it. Mama, Mama, can, can I have those pearls? They're so beautiful and I just want them so bad. Mom picked it up and said, it's two bucks, two dollars. That's a lot of money. You're going to have to pay for these yourself if you want them. Okay, Mama, I'll do it. Sure enough, she went home and over the next week she did extra chores she did uh, extra uh, things around the house to, to, to earn a little bit extra money here, a little bit extra money there. She went to Grandma, asked for a dollar, the dollar that Grandma was going to give her for her birthday. Can you give it to me a little early so I can get these? Grandma being Grandma. Sure enough, she got her money. She went, she bought those, that pearls, those pearls, and, and she wore them everywhere. Everywhere. The only time she took them off was uh, when she got in the bathtub because mom said they turned her neck green because they got wet. She loved those pearls. One night her daddy came in and she always did to tuck her in and he, he said to her, he said, he said, Jenny, he said, do you, do you love me? Oh, daddy, you know I love you. He goes, I love you too. Give me your pearls. Oh, Daddy, not, not, not my pearls. Not anything but my pearls. You, you can take my doll. You know, she's pretty great. You have her. No, it's okay, sweetheart. Daddy loves you. And he kissed her and he walked out. Over and over again, he did this. One night, he walked in to, to tuck her in. And he noticed his, his sweet little girl was sitting there. She's crying, and 
in bed. Oh, sweetie, what, what's wrong? What's, what's wrong? She goes, Daddy, I love you. I really love you. She held out her hand and gave him the pearls. And as the daddy took those pearls, he reached in his pocket and pulled out a strand of real pearls and handed them to her. He had them all along. He was just waiting for her to let go of the fake stuff to give her the real valuable. So often in our life, that's in some ways what our relationship with God is like. We say we love Him, and we're willing to give Him this and this and this and this and all these other things. The easy stuff that's easy to let go of. When really what He wants is us. He wants us to let go of the, the fake stuff, the substitutions that we're leaning on, that we're counting on, that we're, that we're investing our life in, the things that, quote, we've earned. So that we can finally receive the real stuff the comfort and the peace and the joy and the deliverance that only He can grant us. I want to challenge you this morning as you go out to ask yourself, are there things in my life that I've made a God that don't belong there? Are there things I'm relying on for realities and truths that only God can fulfill. I want to challenge you to, to be honest with yourself. To be honest with your priorities and your commitments. And to hand over those substitutes in favor of a God who loves you and who has redeemed you and who has called you to be his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you do love us and that your grace is present and evident and working in our lives. And we're thankful for the reality that you are our God. And God, we confess that sometimes we let other things take that place, fulfill that role. And God, we ask that you empower us and encourage us to, to live lives where that's not how we live and what we do, but lives that point to you, that rely on you. Go with us this morning. Empower us in your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.